An extraordinary number of organizations within the UN system spend most of their time, money and energy, demonizing and attempting to delegitimize Israel and claiming to defend Palestinians. We'll be talking today about UNIFIL, UNRWA, and the UNHRC and several organizations specifically committed to what is called the Palestinian cause with FDD Research Fellow Tony Bedran, FDD Research Analyst David May, and Richard Goldberg, Senior Advisor at FDD and editor of a recently published monograph, A Better Blueprint for International Organizations, to which all three contributed and which Rich edited. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're joining us too here on Foreign Policy. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So David, let's just let's let's start with the various Palestinian specific bodies at the UN, most of which I think are not household names. I mean, how many are they? What do they do that's useful? What do they do that's harmful? Just give us a rundown to start. Sure, uh, thanks for having me. So the first organization, the Special Committee to, Inve to Investigate Israeli Practices, it was formed in 1968, just after the, the Six Day War. Uh, beyond that, there's the Committee to, uh, for the Exercise of the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People, the CEIRPP. Uh, they created a division for Palestinian rights to help run that committee. After that, there's also the UN Register of Damages that was created to help Palestinians who were adversely affected by Israel's security barrier. So all of those organizations are focused specifically on the Palestinians, and they have no uh, analogous uh, body to focus on any other uh, nationality in the UN system. And, and how are they funded? Is it discretionary? Do they ask for donations? Or does everybody, including the American taxpayers, do they just simply have to uh, write checks? So the, these ones receive uh, funding from the UN general, the regular budget. Uh, they get between them. Which means the US funds it. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Which means that the US is funding about 22% of that, uh, and that's 6 uh, million a year. So I think we did the math to about 1.35 million uh, out of the US uh, funding, even though the US has stipulations saying that we'll reduce funding to the UN by a an, an amount appropriate or uh, uh, relevant to the uh, to the total funding, but we're still funding the UN. So US money is going to it. And the US can't say, no, we don't think this is a good organization. We'd rather do not create it or, okay, it's worked for a few years, but uh, we don't think it's doing very well. We'd, we, we'd rather fund something else. Thank you very much. We, we, can't, we can't do that. We don't do that. The US does not uh, have a say in how the funding, or they, they don't make the decision on how the funding is uh, appropriated, and these uh, these organizations are rubber stamped every year. What is uh, something else you write about? It the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. What's that? 
Sure. So the uh, Division for Palestinian Rights, which uh, is kind of synonymous with the Committee on the Exercise of the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People. So in 1977, they created this day uh, of solidarity for the, with the Palestinian people. Uh, it was created on November 29th, which is the anniversary of the partition plan that would have created uh, an Israeli or a Jewish and an Arab state. Uh, the Arabs obviously rejected it. And so now they're still stateless for the Palestinians. Uh, and on an annual basis, they, uh, they have these events where they uh, promote the Palestinian narrative to be kind. Uh, there's been calls for the eradication of Israel. There's been uh, various uh, canards and myths spread about Israel, different uh, blood libels claiming that Israel has uh, genocidal ambitions towards the Palestinians. And all of this is done under the uh, agency of the, United, of the United Nations. You know, one point I just want to emphasize here, because a lot of people, I think, don't know it, and I want to make sure they don't think you've uh, misstated something. When the UN proposed uh, back in the late 1940s a partition of Palestine, they said into, into one state for the Jews, one state for the Arabs. Why did they not say one state for the Jews and one state for the Palestinians? And I'm going to answer my own question. The reason is because at that point, everyone accepted there are Palestinian Jews and there are Palestinian Arabs. And the idea that if you call yourself a Palestinian means you're an Arab, and if you, are, you cannot be a Palestinian Jew, that didn't come for another 20 years or so, although it's a, a, a meme, a construct that has that is sort of held. So if you have a, a, a UN organization focused on the Palestinians, it's not interested in Palestinian Jews. It's not interested in what happened to Jews in Pal who are living in Palestine, no matter how many generations, who after the Arab, Jordanian, actually, conquest of East Jerusalem, expelled all the Jews from there. Just an important point that I think is often over, over, overlooked. Um, anybody else wants to weigh in on that? You're, you're welcome to. But I, I at this point, I would, I would just complicate that uh, to add that uh, up until 1948, the, when you said Palestinians, you actually were referring to Jews. Well, that's right. There was the, the Palestinian Post was a Jewish newspaper. The Palestinian Symphony Orchestra was a Jewish orchestra. Most of the time when people talked about Palestinians at that point, you're absolutely right. They talked about Jews. And a lot of the Arabs did not want to be called Palestinians. If you think about um, Amin Hussein al-Husseini. Uh, 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 Hajj Amin al-Husseini. If you talk about Hajj Amin al-Husseini. Um, who was he was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. He was appointed by the British people. He was the, the representative, uh, in a way, the leader of Palestinian Arabs, but he didn't like the phrase Pal Palestine or Palestinian because it was a Roman name and all that. And um, we won't go into everything else. He, of course, spent the war in Berlin uh, as an associate and a, and a colleague of, of, of Adolf Hitler. Um, so these Palestinian organizations, they um, are they playing a role in the so-called BDS um, movement, BDS campaign, the, the movement to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel until it gets out of the West Bank, but does so even without any security guarantees with any peace treaty, nothing like that, uh, which I would argue were the Israelis to do that what you see in Gaza, you would see in the West Bank, and that would lead to war, and that would mean the deaths of Israelis, but the deaths of Palestinians, probably in much larger numbers. People who are pro-BDS don't seem to want to address that aspect. Sure. So uh, leaders of BDS, they date their founding to July 2005. 
But even before the BDS campaign started in the early 2000, 2001, uh, under the uh, Division for Palestinian Rights and the CEIRPP, they were already uh, hosting different NGO conferences. And at these NGO conferences, they were getting together various uh, pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli NGOs. And they had already started formulating this new notion that there should be some type of NGO-led boycott of the state of Israel. So these, these conferences were being held by the UN, and that's where the initiation of this uh, boycott campaign against Israel really started. You know, um, I'm going to ask you about how the pro-Palestinian activism seeped into other non-Palestinian-specific bodies at the UN. But when I, I hate to use the phrase pro-Palestinian activism, because I would take the view that pro-Palestinian activism would be pushing the Palestinians not to strap um, bombs on their children and send them out to kill Jews, but to say, you know what, you need to make peace with the Israelis, peacefully coexist, you can get your own state if that's what you want, but you've got to negotiate, which the Palestinians under Mahmoud Abbas have not been, which the Palestinians under Hamas swear they never will. Being pro-Palestinian does not mean continue to fight as long as it takes, sacrifice generations. It should mean, you know, find a way to live peacefully with your neighbors um, who uh, who have a right to be there as you do. Um, but having said that, the usual way this is phrased is pro-Palestinian. So how has um, these this anti-Israel activism, um, if we want to call it that, seeped into other bodies at the UN that are not specifically uh, addressing the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Sure. So, yes, I was being very generous with the term pro-Palestinian activism, and I would argue that this idea that the uh, Palestinians use the UN as this uh, as this uh, home front, this uh, home uh, stadium for their cause actually is to their detriment because they are afforded a lot of things on paper by the UN that are there, they have no chance of actually securing on the ground. And so the, the gap between uh, perception and reality is actually to their detriment. But uh, going to your question, uh, it has actually seeped into other organizations not Palestinian focused. Uh, so for uh, example, the, the Human Rights Council is the biggest example where they have what they call agenda item seven. So at every meeting of the Human Rights Council, they are required to bring about Israel's human rights uh, record uh, and always uh, in a negative light. They also have a special rapporteur devoted specifically to the Palestinians uh, and to criticizing Israel. And it's the only open-ended mandate. Uh, recently, they formed a commission of inquiry to investigate the recent uh, Israel-Hamas war. That also has uh, an open-ended mandate to uh, understand the nature and the background of the entire conflict. But beyond that, they, it seeps into different organizations where it would seemingly have no role such as the World Health Organization that uh, takes time out of its busy schedule. In fact, a full day this past uh, conference to castigate Israel for its treatment of the Palestinians, which if you compare uh, its treatment of Palestinians to serious treatment of Palestinians, uh, it, it really is shocking. Uh, and beyond that, you also have UNESCO where they, uh, they pass resolutions that deny Jewish connections to the land of Israel. I want to be fair. Are there any positive developments related to all these uh, Palestinian-centric bodies? Sure. So one, I guess, positive in terms of uh, negating its negative effect is that in uh, February of 2020, Ukraine uh, withdrew from the uh, CEIRPP. Uh, another positive uh, development is that 
uh, on these different uh, resolutions that are passed on an annual basis, they have actually been seeing somewhat of a dip in support, especially the, uh, the resolution that uh, helps renew the mandate for the special committee to investigate Israeli practices affecting the Palestinian people. It's a one-sided mandate. It only calls to investigate Israel. And a lot of countries have become, uh, uh, have become more aware of the negative effect that it has. And quickly, uh, if the Biden administration says, "Okay, well, we should we should we should do better here. We should improve and reform these organizations," just quickly, I know you, your 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 chapter lists quite a few recommendations. What are the what are the top recommendations the Biden administration should be considering? The I mean the the there's not really room for reform for many of these organizations. They exist solely to perpetuate a conflict. So the main recommendation is instead of uh, with withholding funding by an amount uh, proportionate to the U.S.'s role, so uh, instead of withholding 22% of the budget, we should withhold the entire budget, so uh, six million uh, on an annual basis. And also, we should be encouraging other countries that have been uh, abstaining on uh, resolutions to fund and renew the mandates of these organizations. We should push them to uh, vote no. Uh, and the other final thing that the U.S. should be uh, pushing for is for different org uh, countries that are on the CIRPP. There's 25 members and 24 observers. They should be pushing those countries, especially friendly ones, such as Cyprus and India, to withdraw. And then other countries that are observers, uh, such as the UAE, Morocco, that just had a peace deal uh, with Israel. Uh, uh, Egypt and Jordan, they should also withdraw their status as observers. Um, this question could pay a whole show, it could be an hour, it could be a book, probably has been, but in a sentence or two, and why is the United Nations so focused on Israel and the Palestinians? Sure. So there's different, uh, I guess, political um, observations that it came about during the Cold War. It was a, a way for the Soviet Union to bash the United States without actually heading, hitting it directly. It, Israel was more of a target because it had uh, a broad base of, of uh, enemies between the, the developing world and the Arab world. Uh, but all of this, uh, you know, it, these are side effects. It, if, if, even, even if there are different reasons for focusing on Israel, in effect, the focus on Israel, especially to the exclusion of many other conflict areas, uh, is, you know, it, it ends up being a form of anti-Semitism. Tony, let's, let's move on to uh, UNIFIL, which is a UN interim force in Lebanon, but it was established in 1978. Now, interim suggests an intervening time. So between what and what is UNIFIL interim? Yes, I mean it's the Middle East, so time takes on a different uh, <laughs> a different nature. But um, in uh, so Unifil, what we're talking about right now is not the mandate that existed between 1978 and uh, 2006. We're talking really at what has existed since the 2006 war between Hezbollah and Israel, which ended with the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1701 which greatly expanded the size and scope of operations of UNIFIL, but did so, and this is to sort of anticipate our discussion further, is to, um, uh, is to uh, basically tether 
uh, UNIFIL's operations to the Lebanese government and the Lebanese armed forces. Therefore, everything that UNIFIL is mandated to do in Lebanon has to be done in coordination with and sometimes with seeking prior approval, prior approval of the Lebanese authorities. So this became the structural fatal flaw at the heart of, of the mandate. It was done in a different uh, sort of historical period than the one we are now. Basically, at the time, it was after the Cedar Revolution in Lebanon. It was very heady days of the Bush administration and the freedom agenda. And everyone's thinking, well, we're supporting pro-Western, pro-independence forces in Lebanon, all of which was, of course, a complete mirage. But um, that sort of uh, confidence in, or, in the uh, Lebanese uh, was misplaced, uh, and predictably so. So, And it led to the UNIFIL mandate being a complete failure, because if UNIFIL is supposed to prevent uh, the, its area of operation, which extends from the Blue Line, which is the border between Israel and, and, and Lebanon, all the way north to the Litani River. So it's a sizable chunk of South Lebanon. And in that um, uh, area of operation, uh, a force that was increased to a ceiling of 15,000 international troops matched by uh, Lebanese armed forces who were deployed uh, into that same area. We're supposed to patrol the area. We're supposed to um, ensure that that area was free of all weapons other than those of the Lebanese government and that it was not a uh, launching pad for any hostile acts uh, against Israel. So these are the two primary uh, objectives of the resolution. Uh, and now, 15 years later, not a single one of them have, has been remotely uh, been achieved. So uh, it's, it's been, by any measure, a complete and utter failure. And like I said, it was predictably so because it was predicated on a partnership between unwilling uh, international uh, troops and, and their respective states uh, and uh, definitely a Lebanese government that is uh, beholden to, uh, if not directly controlled by Hezbollah. Yeah, I, I mean, if I understand correctly, so the idea was that UNIFIL, these international forces, they would support and bolster the Lebanese armed forces, the national armed forces of Lebanon, so that they could, so the, the LAF, the Lebanese armed forces, would be, would be in control in their own country, and Hezbollah would have to, okay, they're not going to maybe be disarmed, but they'd have to take a back seat. What's happened in reality is that the Lebanese armed forces are acting and if I'm exaggerating, you tell me, as sort of the auxiliary forces of Hezbollah, which has, which is stronger, which is better armed, which is more determined, um, and which is is really uh, is the primary martial power in the country. And yet, though this is, seems to be pretty clear, and you've certainly written about it a lot, uh, those supporting the LAF continue to do so and kind of. Uh, say, well, yeah, maybe that's true, but it doesn't always have to be, and maybe it can change, and what else are we going to do? And so they just leave not well enough alone. Right. So, I mean, that's the twin failure of U.S. policy, right? It's a UNIFIL failure and a LAF failure, right? Because, and, and the foundation is, the, 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 the reason behind the failure is the same. We, it's not that just that Hezbollah is the stronger uh, party with its weapons and 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 demographics and all of that. It's that it is part of the government at every level. So it is part of the government uh, uh, in parliament, in the cabinet, 
At the local level in all of these municipalities where UNIFIL is deployed, all of these municipalities are, uh, uh, you know, in, when they run an election and, and Hezbollah runs candidates that then take charge of these municipalities. And these municipalities are where UNIFIL operates, where it needs permission, where it invests money, uh, where it does all of its uh, sort of uh, aid and development work, if you like, sort of, and that's kind of what's been more and more its nature and its function, more like another UN aid and relief agency rather than a, you know, a peacekeeping force. Um, and so that is the fundamental uh, 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 paradox in U.S. policy. We want to empower the Lebanese state so-called, against Hezbollah, and we speak of Hezbollah as a separate entity, a terrorist entity that exists separately from the Lebanese state. But that's false. Hezbollah is the Lebanese state at every level, level, from the municipal level to the parliamentary to the cabinet. So when you're empowering the Lebanese state and, and you know, Lebanon is a sectarian system, so every community and communal representative gets a quota in the appointment of, you know, administrative appointment, uh, uh, officer appointments, etc., etc. Uh, I mean, de facto, that's what they do. So when you're empowering that structure and that political order, by definition, you are empowering Hezbollah and working with Hezbollah. And proof is in the pudding, as they say. It's, it's for 15 years, the LAF has exactly, as you, met, as you described, it's very accurate, an auxiliary force. It, it runs interference on behalf of Hezbollah. It blocks access for un, to UNIFIL to, to inspect sites. Uh, I have a piece coming out now, for instance, of one of uh, other things that they've, um, that they've blocked UNIFIL from doing. UNIFIL uh, uh, in... Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, recommended that uh, uh, they install advanced cameras inside UNIFIL locations so that they can monitor the blue line better. Uh, Hezbollah didn't want it. The LAF blocked it on behalf of Hezbollah. Same thing for the use of surveillance drones. Hezbollah said, no, no, no. The LAF came in, told UNIFIL, scrap it. They scrapped it. The LAF, in other words, works as a proxy for Hezbollah as it interfaces with UNIFIL. One other example occurs to me, and I think I must have read it in something you wrote. The LAF has been impeding UNIFIL um, and denying UNIFIL requests to inspect a series of Hezbollah attack tunnels into Israel that the Israelis discovered, uh, I don't know, back in 2018, I think it was. Yes. And there's something else that I want you to just mention quickly. UNIFIL's maritime task force. Is this like UNIFIL's navy? Yes, so a part of the mandate also gave uh, UNIFIL a, a naval force. Uh, but again, like with the ground troops, it's, uh, it works with the Lebanese armed forces. So it has the authority to flag a ship that it you know, deems suspicious, but it can't board it. It can only refer it to the LAF. The LAF has to board it and then inspect it. Now, Guess what the track record is of how many uh, shipments of weaponry they found on, on the over, I don't know, by now it's like about 15,000 vessels or so. Uh, I'll take a wild guess. Zero. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. I was going to get that right, and I was hoping you were going to bet me on it. It's, uh, a big, it's a big zero. In fact, in recent reports uh, by the Secretary General on the implementation of 1701, he notes that in several cases, UNIFIL referred vessels to the LAF, let's say they referred 450, let's say, the, the LAF inspected only, let's say, 420 of them. Uh, 
And, you know, they don't know why. And so we've, you know, they've asked the LAF, they put in a request as to why, but they don't know why. So it's a, it's a farce. The whole thing is a complete farce, right? Because it is uh, predicated on basically Hezbollah monitoring itself. That's what it boils down to. All right, let's move on to UNRWA, the UN Relief and Works Agency. Rich, that was established in 1949. Hmm. With what goal? Well, if we turn back the clocks back to 1948, 1949, sort of beginning with where you started with David, uh, we obviously had a war, the Israeli War of Independence uh, that took place. The established state of Israel uh, after the armistice uh, was there. Um, And you had two refugee populations that uh, had been created uh, as part of that conflict. You had a Jewish refugee population that uh, were kicked out of Arab countries, Uh, during that war. Uh, And there was a flood of Palestinian Arabs uh, that had left uh, their homes as well. Uh, Some at the encouragement of uh, Arab leaders who said, you know, uh, make way, the armies are coming, we're going to drive the Jews into the sea, you'll go back to your home soon. Some who did not want to live under Jewish uh, jurisdiction. And then a credible some who who fled, it was a conflict and they didn't want to be there. Following that conflict, however, you had two very different ways of dealing with the refugee populations. The Jewish refugees were absorbed into the infant state of Israel as Israeli citizens. The Palestinian Arabs were kept on the borders. They were not allowed to integrate into various Arab countries uh, where many of them had been descendants of. Uh, And so you have camps set up to care for refugees. And you have an organization called the UN Relief and Works Agency established to care for these refugees until such time as this conflict could be resolved without anybody thinking that this would take 70 years plus to resolve a conflict at the time the Arabs are thinking we will keep uh, these people here on the borders, give them hope that we will still reconquer uh, what is now the state of Israel, and they will return to their homes. They will have this so-called right of return. And indeed, the Arab countries tried uh, several times to, to do just that, failed militarily, but kept this political narrative alive for decades. Now, at the same time, just after UNRWA was established, the UN had to deal with larger refugee populations around the world. And someone had the good idea, let's have a dedicated UN agency just for refugees, the High Commissioner of Refugees, to care for all refugees in the world and do it in a more systematic way and make the goal to move people into a post-refugee status, whether that is to be integrated where they are now, to go back, repatriate to where they came from, or some other solution uh, so they don't stay in a state of statelessness. Um, For some reason, we know the reason, UNRWA was not folded into that other organization, could easily have been so. Uh, When UNHRC was adopted, it could have simply said, okay, we are taking the Palestinian Arab population as well, and the mandate will be to return them to their homes, find new homes for them, whatever whatever the case may be. By keeping this population separate under different rules and definitions of what is a refugee, and in a governance structure where rather than having the traditional UN international staff Uh, that you would see at the High Commissioner for Refugees and most other UN agencies. This has a purely Palestinian Arab staff. And to give you some metrics uh, of differences and mandate differences, we talked about one thing. 
the High Commissioner for Refugees supposed to get people into post-refugee status. UNRWA is supposed to keep people in refugee status as long as possible. Keep a conflict going. Keep this idea of the right of return going that Israel will soon be destroyed. And they've held that for 70 plus years. You also have uh, a different uh, type of, of problem. Uh, and that is you have an organization of 30,000 staff for what they claim to be five to six million refugees at this point because they grant children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, automatic refugee status, people who were never alive during conflict, never displaced during conflict, people who, by the way, may live in Jordan, living as citizens of Jordan, still counted as refugees in these millions. People who live in the West Bank, who live in Gaza, uh, who are in what has been declared to be a Palestinian state, somehow are still Palestinian refugees, right? And they have 30,000 Palestinians who govern them with this whole independent structure, which is effectively a pseudo state inside a state. Whereas for the high commissioner of refugees serving millions, millions more refugees around the world, they're able to do that with a third of the staff, with international staff, and actually move people to post-refugee status as soon as possible. So you have to take stock of all of this now in 2021 and say to yourself, wow, now we have the Abraham Accords. We have this complete shift in the mentality of the Middle East where you have Arab countries, uh, some of which were there in 1948, 1949, some of which have come about since then, uh, some of which participated in attacks on the United uh, on, on Israel, I should say, um, some of which joined on to Arab League boycotts after they were established as well. But now, whether you have a peace accord with Israel, you're thinking about a peace accord with Israel, you were there in 1949, you weren't there in 1949. There is this feeling of Israel is here to stay. We're not defeating Israel militarily. In fact, Israel is an asset to the region, and we want to find ways to integrate more with Israel for our economic future in a world that's getting off oil, or at least oil dependency on the Middle East, uh, and for our strategic security future vis-a-vis -vis the threats primarily from the Islamic Republic of Iran. Why then do we keep this organization separate from the High Commissioner of Refugees? Why do we keep this organization at all? to perpetuate a conflict that no one in the region except the Palestinians wants to perpetuate at this point. And that's the moment in time, I think now, for a moment of self-reflection, reevaluation, as we mark the one-year anniversary of the Abraham Accords, what is the future of UNRWA? Much like what is the future of those Palestinian-related organizations that David talked about? Is it not time for us to have quiet conversations with our partners in the Middle East? and all of our partners throughout other areas of the world in Europe and Asia and say, time for a new direction. This is not fulfilling anyone's mandate. Oh, by the way, if you care about human rights, if you care about the dignity of the individual, if you believe in certain elements of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, and the fulfillment of economic success and economic rights for all individuals, you can't support UNRWA. UNRWA is antithetical to all of those values because it says to people, no, I'm sorry, you can't have a better life. You can't go across the road into a Palestinian city where people make more money per capita, where people have jobs, where people are not considered refugees, even though they're your neighbors. You have to stay here in this camp with a lower income, 
call yourself a refugee and just prepare yourself to go back to Israel one day when we finally see the collapse and, and the flood of refugees comes. It foments anti-Semitism. It is antithetical to peace and antithetical to human rights. I want to emphasize something and then it leads to a question. And that is, as you pointed out, those who fled from the war that was waged by Israel's Arab neighbors, really all of them to destroy Israel, that was the declared intent. Um, those who went to Lebanon ended up in camps. The Lebanese could have said, well, you're our neighbors, you're fellow Arabs, fellow Muslims, you speak the same language, we're all part of the Levant, just as Jews from Tripoli and Cairo and Buddha and, and Baghdad are being uh, accepted into Israel. We accept you as citizens, glad to have you. Instead, they kept them in camps. Kept them in camps in Syria as well, and I could say the same things there. In Jordan, a lot of them did get citizenship, but still consider themselves refugees, even though they're citizens of the Jordanian state. And the Jordanian state, of course, occupies by any historic measure, three quarters of the historic area of Palestine. But even more strangely, and this is where I had a question, you have refugee camps for Palestinian refugees in Palestine. In other words, you cross over from Israel into the West Bank, which is everyone says, okay, that's Palestine, right? And there's a refugee camp. Now, I'm not sure that I understand this. If you're in, in, in one of those refugee camps, you can't say, okay, I'm moving out. I think I'd rather live in, uh, I don't know, further south or in Bethlehem or I don't, where, wherever. You can't say that if you're in the refugee camps. The, the problem here is that the Palestinian Authority doesn't want you to say that, doesn't want you to have the ability to do that. Uh, they, they don't want to have it on their books, right? This is an entire subsidy program to do basic elements of governance for what should be and what they claim to be a Palestinian state. So if you take a couple million people and say, we're not actually responsible for providing education, healthcare, streets and sanitation, housing for them, well, that's a lot of money off the budget. That's a lot of responsibility off. Oh, and it comes with the political warfare against the state of Israel. Like, what a win-win if, if you're sitting in Ramallah. But by the way, what a lose-lose if you actually cared about Palestinian statehood. Because... Yeah, that's why I say it's not pro-Palestinian cause that we're really talking about here. That's just what it's called, yeah. And, and I, I think it's a great point you raise. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Several years ago in Congress, uh, we went into the foreign ops bill. And by the way, they have tried in Congress uh, to push and shove and reform UNRWA, uh, you know, seven ways from Sunday. Let me tell you something, unless you're willing to cut off the money and work with allies to cut off their funding as well and force reforms, force a change, force a change in mandate, no amount of pushing and shoving from Congress is going to work. You are, I hear a member of Congress say, we're taking the, the anti-Semitic textbooks at UNRWA very seriously. We're very surprised. I've sent a letter to the UN Secretary General. I'd say, thank you for your leadership. That is a ridiculous idea. It is never going to work. You have to cut off the funds and look for what to do next. Um, what we did several years ago is we, we tried to get the Government Accountability Office, GAO, uh, to go into the West Bank to interview UNRWA, interview the Palestinian Authority, and make recommendations on a technical basis. If you were to turn over the services of UNRWA, to the Palestinian Authority just in the West Bank, what would you need to do? What are the computer software integration issues you need to resolve? Uh, you know, what are the technical, technocratic things that you need to be prepared for to integrate UNRWA 
populations and services to be absorbed by a Palestinian state, right? And this idea that we actually are, are, are preparing for a two-state solution as everybody claims to be for uh, in this arena, most people, at least in the mainstream. And the State Department said, I'm sorry, we won't let you in. Uh, there are security concerns. And so GAO never completed the report. They had some like notional ideas of what could happen, but they were not allowed to speak to UNRWA. They weren't allowed to speak to the, uh, to the Palestinian Authority. Palestinian Authority and UNRWA said, no, don't let them talk to us. So the State Department blocked and tackled for them. Uh, we once actually said, okay, here's, here's an idea. Why do we allow hundreds of millions of dollars US taxpayer funds to go to UNRWA without demanding an audit of their books that we get to pay for with a very reputable, international auditing firm. I'm not going to rely on the UN auditor. I'm not going to rely on UNRWA's word for it. I want our people to go in and take a look at the books because after years of, of allegations of money going to Hamas uh, individuals, Palestinian Islamic Jihad individuals, associates, affiliates, you've seen the articles, schools being used for rocket attacks, tunnels under the schools, uh, headmasters moonlighting as terrorists, clearly the people who are receiving cash assistance, UNRWA will tell us they don't have a political bias in who they give money to. Political bias means Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, because to them, on the UN lists, those are just political organizations. They're not terrorist groups the way we think of them. So they're getting money. You're a member of Hamas, you're a member of PIJ, you're a member of a terrorist organization designated by the United States, but not designated by the United Nations. You're getting money or contract from UNRWA, I guarantee you. So I want to see the books. I want to know because we have U.S. laws in place that say that's not supposed to happen. Um, we said, we'll fund it. We'll give you millions of dollars to go fund this. We won't even make you pay for it. We're going to give you a couple hundred million dollars for your budget, and we will spend another couple million dollars to pay for the audit. State Department fought it tooth and nail. This was under the Bush administration, mind you, not under the Obama administration. And... As it turned out, the money sat there. It was never allowed. UNRWA said, sorry, against UN rules. You're not allowed to an independent audit United States. It was never carried out to this day. And their position to this day is we are not allowed to audit their books. That's crazy. If you're an appropriator, if you are responsible for appropriating US taxpayer money and an organization that has failed in its mission for 70 years, that is fomenting anti-Semitism, that is a challenge to peace, that has a record of money going to terrorists, all of the above things. And by the way, they won't even let you conduct an independent audit at your own expense, has no board of governors, no oversight mechanism. You don't even get to choose who the uh, director, the secretary general of the agency is. Why are we funding it? It makes no sense. Uh, last subject for today, I'm going to ask both you, Rich, and you, David, David to talk about it. Because you, you, we've talked about this, it's something you and I, Rich, have on other podcasts, and that's the UN Human Rights Council. Um, I mean, just as a general opening, based on its record, it would appear that, according to the UN Human Rights Council, Israel is the world's worst violator of human rights, worse than North Korea, worse than Venezuela, worse than Myanmar, worse than China, uh, which right now, according to the U.S. and according to the Europeans, is committing genocide against the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, which the People's Republic of China claims to be part of China. I might say it's a Central Asian country that is dominated, uh, conquered by China. Uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the dictatorship in Syria that's killed five, 500,000 Syrians and displaced 10 times that number. If you look at the record of the UN Human Rights Council, all that pales compared to the crimes 
uh, of the Israelis. Is that, David, you started us off. Is, if, if I were a Martian looking at this purely objectively based on that evidence, that would be my conclusion, wouldn't it? Of course. So the uh, Human Rights Council's predecessor, uh, it was shut down in 2006 because it was by and large dominated by uh, dictatorships. And also to a lesser extent, it was shut down because of its vir virulent anti-Israel bias. Uh, they, when they set up the Human Rights Council, it was with the promise to address these concerns, and it appears that they have not done any of that. Uh, we have as many resolutions passed against Israel as the rest of the world combined. Uh, and as I was saying before, uh, functionally, uh, part of it is because Israel is a small country. It's easy to gang up on it. Uh, another reason why countries tend to focus on Israel, it's a good distraction from their own domestic issues, especially in dictatorships. If you can focus that anger uh, externally, then it's helpful, but all of these are explanations that don't do anything to counter the fact that functionally, this is a form of anti-Semitism. And Rich, under in the previous administration, when Nikki Haley was uh, the ambassador at the UN, she, I think she's fair to say, you know, you've worked with her, she contributed to the monograph, that she considered the UN Human Rights Council just hopeless and withdrew from it. Um, I understand the idea of the uh, Biden administration saying, well, we need to make it better and we can do that if we're sitting at the table and engage. But so far, that doesn't appear to be the case. It's never been the case with U.S. engagement in the past. And at least there was an opportunity to say for the Biden administration to say, OK, we disagree with Trump. We want to be part of this and we want to, con to, to contribute to it. But they have a point. Some reforms are necessary and uh, they decided not to say anything to just say, yeah, I'm sure we can improve it once we're back at the table. You know, I wanna zoom out before I answer the question directly because I think this really ties the thread of all the agencies we've talked about today. And it's a contrast to our conversation, Cliff, you, you and I had uh, with Andrea and Anthony on, on another episode uh, regarding other agencies like the IAEA and the OPCW. And we talk about this in the monograph, and we talked about this on that show as well. Our approach isn't just burn it all down, right? It's just defund the UN. Uh, that might be a gratifying idea to a lot of people, uh, but it, it's not constructive. Uh, our approach is to take a very sober assessment of agencies that have problems and understand based on their governance, structure, rules, U.S. influence, whether or not they can be improved. If the structure is set up against us where we cannot make reforms and the agency is out of control and detrimenting U.S. interests and U.S. allies, we should not be involved there. U.S. funding shouldn't be there, and we should look for creative ways to put pressure on the U.N. to destroy, degrade that organization and replace it with something else or simply let, let that be. There are organizations that we've looked at where we said, we have influence. We have the ability to get director generals elected. We have money at the table. They listen to us. If we put our you know, skin into the game and we can get allies on board and we can push back and there's vital interest here and no one else is going to do this job, and let's do, let's do this. When we're talking about the organizations today, UNIFIL, you heard Tony talk about a mandate that will never be fulfilled, but we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on a force which by the way, the PLA contributes troops to. And so you're subsidizing as you do in several peacekeeping operations, a, a, a topic for another day, subsidizing training of the PLA. Um, but, but more importantly, detrimenting US allies, US interests there. 
wasting taxpayer money. The Palestinian organizations David talked about wasting taxpayer money. UNRWA wasting taxpayer money. In fact, using taxpayer money potentially for very, very malign purposes. The Human Rights Council falls into this category. No question about it. The structure, the way you vote to elect people to the council, the way the leadership is appointed, the high commissioner for human rights, et cetera, there is simply no way to change the organization from the outside. You can't simply say, well, we're going to not participate or we are going to participate. It's still going to be there perpetuating itself. So we need a comprehensive plan to isolate, degrade, and replace this organization. One thing I wanted to bring up, Cliff, right now while we're talking about this, with, with this idea that the Biden administration said we have to have a seat at the table, we need to be, we'll be able to reform this organization so long as we engage, right? We heard this from the Obama administration, by the way, identical language. They didn't do it. They failed, right? The Trump administration pulled out. They tried to reform it. They said it's not, not reformable. It pulled out. There wasn't a plan, at least evident, to replace it, to isolate it, to degrade it. So it continued. And it's there for the Biden administration to go right back to with this Pollyannish theory that if we sit there, we'll, we'll change it. And what has happened so far with the U.S. sitting back at the table, endorsing, enabling, giving tacit approval to this council, saying that they're going to run for a seat at the next election? Well, we've seen zero accountability of China. In fact, a whistleblower who works in Geneva who had blown the whistle saying the Human Rights Council is turning over the names of dissidents who report human rights violations to the CCP, to the Communist Chinese Party, is now being fired. The Chinese have a new seat on the Human Rights Council. There is a new administration that has re-embraced the Human Rights Council. Suddenly, after a couple of years of this whistleblower doing media, as you recall, our listeners will remember, she appeared with us, Cliff, on foreign policy. Emma Riley, sure. Emma Riley. Uh, the United Nations now cites our podcast as one of the reasons why she must be fired uh, immediately by the end of August uh, 2021 uh, because she has uh, disclosed confidential information. Not that she's lying, but she's disclosed confidential information. Uh, no reaction from the Biden administration, no accountability. This is a huge win for the CCP. Um, we have seen after the conflict between Hamas and Israel, the standup of a special panel now to investigate Israel for war crimes with an endless mandate, seemingly, with vicious anti-Israel haters uh, being appointed to the panel of inquiry. No real accountability from the Biden administration, no reversal of, oh, we can't stand by and let this happen. No, full steam ahead. Engagement's going to work. At some point, somebody has to understand engagement's not going to work at this council. It is fundamentally broken and rigged against us and our allies. And we don't just have to leave it. We have to find a way to degrade it and replace it. I think we'll, we'll perhaps stop there. I, I must say, I, I wish I could tell you I was confident that the, in time, the Biden administration is going to say, we have to fix what's broken. America's national interests are very much at stake here, and there are humanitarian issues as well. But I'm not confident of that. Maybe the administration after that. For now, thank you, Rich. Thank you, David. Thank you, Tony. Uh, to be continued, it's an important subject. I'm glad you wrote the, uh, the monograph, and uh, I'm glad we're talking about this. Thanks to all of you for listening today here on Foreign Policy.
Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.